Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Arash Masoudi, our M&A correspondent, and Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. Down the line, we have EY partner Richard Milnes. Today, we'll be talking about the UK's bank super tax and why the government may have got its numbers wrong. Secondly, Brian Moynihan's bid to stay on as both chief executive and chairman of Bank of America. And finally, a look at Paul Taubman as his boutique investment bank prepares to float. First to that story, though, that the government's projections of what it might raise from the new super tax on bank profits may be slightly too low. Richard Milnes, thanks very much for joining us. Your calculations suggest that the six billion figure that the government thinks they might raise is underestimating what will actually come through the door. Yeah, we think so. We spoke to clients kind of immediately after the, the summer budget for their views on the numbers in the HMT and OBR forecasts. And we got a lot of surprise across our client base, people thinking that some of the bigger banks thinking they'd be a significant proportion of that. And we were concerned then that if the government was going to raise far more from the sector than they were expecting to and that they previously had under the bank levy policy, what impact would that have to returns on equity and capital and lending activities and also on inward investment into the UK sector? And so you we- think the actual number could be as high as double the six billion the government reckons on? We do, yeah. So what we did, we looked at current levels of profitability for sample archetypal banks of certain types in the market, current and forecast levels of profitability, and we looked at what would this surcharge do to those types of banks. And actually, very quickly, when we added it up, counting on two hands, you could get to a number of banks that could get you to the 5.9 billion, which is the government's forecast from the surcharge. So that led us to think, well, actually, that's only a small proportion of the market of payers of this tax. There's significant upside in this, I guess, both in the profitability forecast and in that basic point that only a few would get them to the number. Now, as you alluded to in your first comment, this is in some ways a new tax that replaces a portion of the bank levy, which the Chancellor has signalled will be reduced in scope. That in itself is something that's heartened the banks. And the idea that the super tax might be less costly was a carrot that was held out to the banks. But there was actually a lot of anger about the whole idea of a super tax. And especially if it's going to be much more costly than initially projected, then I can imagine there's going to be a lot of cross bankers. Yeah, I mean, the bank levy was particularly not liked by the sector because of the distortions it brought being based on balance sheets with tax banks, even when they weren't making profits and definitely had distorted some decisions around balance sheet growth and lending activities and in global banking context activities in the UK. But nonetheless, what we've ended up with now is the worst of both worlds. We've got a surcharge and the bank levy does remain. And it's the overall levels, really, that are the issue for the sector. Well, let me just bring in Emma at this point, because another complaint from the sector really is that this isn't just something that affects the big banks in a way that the levy tended to penalise the big banks. This actually goes against, in some way, the previous government policy of trying to encourage smaller institutions to challenge the big banks because it hits them as well. 
That's right. A number of bosses of the so-called challenger banks are quite aggrieved that the surprise tax surcharge was unveiled in the budget because they argue that a lot of them are quite new and arguably didn't contribute to the financial crisis, which they suggest is part of the reason for the bank levy in the first place as a sort of punishment for the big lenders. So they're pretty annoyed about this, to say the least, and they're actually meeting with a senior Treasury official on Friday to discuss the issue. This follows a letter from the bank bosses to the Chancellor George Osborne outlining their concerns with the tax, saying how ultimately it could stifle lending by some £6 billion over the course of this parliament, which, to put into context, they believe will really impact lending to small and medium-sized companies, as a lot of the high street lenders have retrenched from this activity. So they're meeting with senior Treasury officials on Friday to discuss this. However, one of the bank bosses said that the response letter from George Osborne said that there won't be any changes to the surcharge in this fiscal year. Let me just bring Richard back in for a final comment then on this. Maybe there won't be any changes this year, but do you envisage that, especially if your numbers are right, that tax take could be far higher than expected, that the government may recalibrate this at some point? I think that will be our plea and suggestion to the government. You're right that this came in with no consultation as of a number of bank tax changes in the last year or so. So we're well down the track for this finance bill going through Parliament. So it seems unlikely that there'll be changes now. But that's right. We would say have a look at the numbers as they come into the government. Think about how much you want to raise from this sector and the broader implications for the sector outside the tax policy and be prepared to recalibrate. Well, definitely a topic to look closely at over the coming year. Thank you very much, Richard Mills, for joining us from EY. Thank you. Well, let's move on to our second story for the day. Brian Moynihan, the chairman and chief executive of Bank of America, has a battle on his hands. After taking on that chairman's role alongside the CEO job a year ago, he's now facing a backlash from investors. Later this month, there's going to be a shareholder vote, and it looks like he might well lose that vote and be stripped of the chairman's title. Martin, what do you think is going to happen, and does it really matter? This vote in two weeks' time is looking fairly close several of the proxy firms that recommend and advise institutional shareholders on how to vote in these types of things have come out and said that they will advise voting no, voting against giving Bank of America the authorization to make this change, which they've already done, by the way, last year. He is, as you said, chairman and chief executive already. And they did that without consultation and without asking for approval from the shareholders. So the shareholders are pretty angry about this. And some of the big institutions like the Californian pension funds, Calsters and Calpers, also the big Norwegian oil sovereign wealth fund, uh, Norges fund, they've all come out and indicated that they plan to vote against this. But I would say that most US banks, unlike in the UK, where there is a tradition of splitting chairman chief executive roles on larger companies, and particularly on the banks, in the US, most banks have a single person who is chairman and chief executive. And Bank of America is really stepping up and pulling out all the stops to try and convince shareholders to vote in its favour. It's already announced that it's promoting one of its non-executive directors to be lead independent director and said it's given that person a lot more responsibility in a position similar to with roles and responsibilities consistent with the duties of an independent chairman. 
And that's a trick that they've learnt from J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs, who faced similar criticism of Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan having both roles and also Lloyd Blankfein at Goldman Sachs having both roles. And in both of those cases, what those banks did was to promote a non-executive director to give them a lead director status and as a sort of SOP to shareholders. They've also been really calling around. And U.S. banks have seemed very skillful at defusing these rows with shareholders. J.P. Morgan had a big battle with shareholders over this and eventually the vote was 32% against them. So they passed it quite easily. But does it matter? Well, it depends where you sit, really, because of the 30 biggest US banks, only four have independent chairmen. And the biggest of those is Citigroup, where Mike Corbat is chief executive and reports up into an independent chairman. In terms of governance in the UK, we would say that you know running a big global bank is too much for one person. And you do need that check to make sure that chief executive power is kept in check by an independent chairman and the help and the assistance that that chairman can provide in dealing with things like regulation, with things like public policy. But in terms of performance, I think this will also be a kind of referendum on Brian Moynihan and his performance at Bank of America because the shares are still lagging well below the level that they reached before the crisis and they've underperformed the S&P 500 pretty badly. So is it a vote on him as leader of the company then? If he loses this vote in terms of the chairmanship, is his role as chief executive under threat? Well, they haven't said that. He hasn't said that and the bank haven't said it. But I guess that's a risk. JP Morgan let it be known when they had this battle with shareholders over Jamie Dimon's position as both chairman and chief executive, that if shareholders voted to strip him of the chairmanship, he would leave. They've very much made that clear. That's a bit of brinkmanship that you can probably get away with if you're Jamie Dimon. Exactly. Whether you can do it as Brian Jamie Dimon and JP Morgan have performed a lot better through the crisis and since then than Brian Moynihan and Bank of America, which has repeatedly failed the US stress test, the CCAR program, which is a crucial thing that determines dividends and share buybacks for US banks. As I said, the share price performance has been different. Now, what Bank of America will argue is actually, if you look at their second quarter results, they were very strong. And they say, just as we're now getting into the turnaround phase, it's starting to produce results and his strategy is finally paying off. Don't do this to us now and disrupt everything and throw it all into uncertainty. Well, we'll see in two weeks time when that vote happens. OK, thank you for that. Let's move on to our final topic. Paul Tauchman, once co-head of investment banking at Morgan Stanley and now the founder and head of his own boutique investment bank, has let it be known that this boutique is going to float very soon. Next month, Arash Masoudi is here to talk about it, our M&A correspondent. Arash, you broke this story and it's quite an interesting trend because it's pretty unusual for these types of entities to float, especially so early on in their lives. Yeah, and um, what's unique about this one is that it's not an IPO, it's a spin-off of Blackstone's advisory business. So um, Paul Tauchman is kind of reversing his entity into exactly. that and, and floating the whole lot. With essentially no track record as a private business. He was a superstar banker at Morgan Stanley, a sort of famous scuttlebutt with Colm Kelleher, who's now head of the investment bank and securities business there. And James Gorman and Morgan Stanley ultimately decided to promote Kelleher and prompted Taubman's resignation from the bank. But subsequently, he left and he did a couple mega deals basically on his own with an office in Midtown, New York. He worked on the Verizon Vodafone transaction and the initial Comcast deal with Time Warner Cable, which fell apart. 
And that momentum allowed him to build out his business. And so he subsequently poached a few bankers from Morgan Stanley and from across Wall Street and was beginning to get momentum on his own when he was approached by Stephen Schwartzman and the folks at Blackstone. And they convinced him to do this reverse deal with their advisory arm, which was increasingly irrelevant to Blackstone's business because it was constantly conflicted against Blackstone's own attempts to pursue private investments. So this company basically hasn't existed for a year, and the equity will be public. So the guys who joined Taubman and Taubman himself are going to already have had a quite lucrative performance, even though they have done just a few deals. Absolutely. It's a bit of a symptom of our times, isn't it, Martin? The rise of the boutique versus the relative decline of the big investment banks in terms of their presence on big deals. It is. And we have seen boutiques rising for the last couple of years. And I think Arash, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that their share of the market or share of the wallet, as they talk about in these investment banks, boutiques have gone from about 8% of M&A fees to about 16%. So roughly doubled their market share in the past few years. However, some of the boutiques that are listed, and a couple of them listed recently, Houlihan and Loki, which is a restructuring advisor, and Molis, of course, Ken Molis's shop listed a year or two ago. So we've seen a string of them floating recently. But those that are listed and out there have seen their shares disappoint in recent months. So this boutique from Paul Taubman is coming to market. It's not an IPO, but it is coming to market at a time when it looks as though the worm may be turning for some of these boutique investment banks. Despite there being an M&A boom. What's interesting is, and what's also interesting about the proposition of combining with Blackstone, is the ones that have done well have other businesses to complement or even supplement their M&A business. So Lazard has performed well, and it has a large asset management business that is principally EM-focused, but it's a global asset management business. And until the China downturn, it had been doing quite well, but that business has taken a knock. Evercore has bought ISI, a brokerage. So they have complementary businesses that help support the advisory business when there isn't a bunch of M&A. And through Blackstone, Taubman is getting basically the best restructuring advisory business out there and a very strong fund placement business which helps private equity and hedge funds raise money. So he has a slightly more unique proposition in that he's getting two very strong businesses on top of his team of guys which he's put together both in Europe and the US. So his pitch could be slightly more nuanced in saying he's a slightly more diversified business to something like Molis, which is pure play advisory, Lehan, which is M&A and some restructuring. And he's obviously well regarded in New York. So should be interesting to see how this goes on October 1. Yeah, we'll watch it closely. But it does feel as if it's a bit of a symptom of the time, certainly. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Emma and Arash here in the studio and also Richard Milnes from EY down the line. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced this week by John Byrne Murdoch. Until next week, goodbye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.